You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's show, some of your usual reminders need to continue to grow that social media following. So give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, subscribe to our YouTube channel. That continues to grow really well, and so we want to make sure we continue to grow our Hazard Ground community there. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and you click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Whatever you spend, we'll get a percentage of, and we donate that right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here. And for those who also have the Amazon app on their phone, if you go to the website, hazardground.com, on your phone and click on the Amazon button, it will direct you to the app. So it doesn't have to just be on a computer. You can do it from your smartphone. It's really easy and seamless. So no worries there. Just make sure you continue to go to hazardground.com first and then use our link to Amazon and you will get the credit for it. So again, we appreciate you guys being part of the Hazard Ground community that way. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear from you guys. We love the feedback, whether it's good or bad. We're always trying to constantly improve the show and give you guys as the listeners what you want to hear. So don't be afraid to make guest suggestions. You can email us as well, producer at hazardground.com, and we'll take suggestions there. We get a lot of guest ideas from you guys out there, so please keep them coming. We certainly appreciate it. One final note. I'm not sure if you guys saw that this week. The Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida, did a demonstration with canines, and one of the individuals wearing the dog suit was wearing a Colin Kaepernick jersey over it. Now, obviously, Kaepernick is an incredibly charged figure, and I'm not here to tell anybody what they should believe and what they shouldn't believe. The people conducting that demonstration were not current military service members. They were likely veterans, and the Navy is doing an investigation as to see whether or not there were any active duty personnel there. But the Navy SEAL Museum is is a 501c3. It's an independent organization not affiliated with the U.S. Navy, the Navy SEALs, or the Department of Defense. And the people working there most likely were veterans. And again, that's fine, but they just still need to be cognizant of how their actions reflect on all of us because many of the civilians listening They don't know the difference. They don't understand the difference between somebody who is representative of the United States military and someone who is a veteran. And that's why it's really important to make sure you carry yourself in a way that if you're going to do something like that, you have to realize the effect it's going to have on current service members. Just a little bit of a reminder to all of our veterans out there, you are an extension of the active duty, the National Guard, the Reserves, all those people who still wear the uniform. You do need to be a little bit conscious of how you carry yourself, the things that you do, and how you represent yourself. And you can choose to do that any way you want. Again, I'm not here to make a political statement, but just a reminder that the things that you do as a veteran and how you represent yourself are still critically important to how the military is viewed in today's society. And because things are so politically charged and the military has been used as a prop several times over through the political game, you have to be really cognizant of your actions and make sure that they're reflective of not only your individual service, but the service of those who are currently still serving right now. Just a thought I wanted to share with everybody. So again, take it with a grain of salt. You don't have to say that I'm right or wrong. Again, I'm not trying to sway you. Just a little bit of a reminder. 
And now that all that's out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us now is a 20-year veteran of the United States Navy. He retired at the rank of chief, who spent his entire career in the SEAL teams and with DevGrew. He has also been an instructor and educational on leadership and ethics at the Naval Academy, along with getting a master's degree in leadership from Georgetown University. He currently is the founder of Team 3LX, and he is Dan Luna joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dan, welcome, man. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. All right, 20 years, uh, all in the SEAL teams and in a very sort of high-profile environment. You know, and it's, it's funny when we say 20 years, all of a sudden you look back and, you know, 9-11, 20-year anniversary is kind of like sneaking up on us. So uh, it, the idea that someone could spend 20 years, and and I forgot to mention this in the open, basically you deployed every year for about six months at a time to some of the most dangerous places in the world. So you, you, you've had a, a career that is just very much, you know, uh, unmatched from that standpoint. Uh, so congratulations on that. But I like to start at the beginning and tell us how and why you got in the Navy. Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, a lot of deployments in there, you know, deploying <laughs> every other year for 15 years to, to a combat zone. Um, so a lot of, I've, I feel like a, an old man inside even though I look really good on the outside. <laughs> That's important. Don't, don't let anybody tell you different. That is important. You know, I think you and I are about the same age because I've been in the army for 20 years. So, I mean, I, I would tell you, you know, keeping our looks is still something that's very important to us. Oh yeah. You know, it was uh, growing up in the SEAL teams and we get teased for it. You know, rule number one, always look good. So that's kind of one of those. My rule as uh, a Lieutenant, I, I may not know what I'm doing, but at least I look good. Right. So that yeah, was always, that's right. I just wanted to look the part. It, it goes a long way. <laughs> Absolutely. So I started, I joined the Navy 99. Before that, I actually worked for LA County Sheriff's Department for two years. Um, and, and as a, as a kid growing up, I was just, I gravitated to either being a cop or going into the military. Those were just, I was just drawn to that. And so I started out, exploring the law enforcement route. And at the time it just wasn't, it just wasn't a good fit for me. I had, you know, as a, as a young man, a lot of piss and vinegar and there was still a lot of, a lot of effects from the Rodney King mm-hmm. event that happened yeah. with the LAPD. So that was still like the, the, that incident was still going through a lot of departments and, and it just wasn't a fit for me at that time. What were you doing in law enforcement? So I was working in the jails. So I worked custody for, for a couple of years and I just realized, you know, really it was my mature, my maturity level wasn't, wasn't set for, for really being that role. I wanted to, I still had kind of some wild oats and I wanted to do something more adventurous. At least that was a story that I told myself. So the SEAL teams, you know, so now I, I was in the sheriff's department and then I was looking at things in the military at the time. And, you know, I read a bunch of books and I was looking at Airborne and SF and all these different things. And, and really the, the SEALs and BUDS that just that really attracted to me, you know, the the hardship and then the the duration of the hardship, <clears throat> the water element, uh, just being cold and wet. And I was just like, man, that sounds miserable. I want to see if I can make it through that. So that was <laughs> that was really my decision process of 
you know, just weighing a measure, looking at the duration. I was looking at ranger school and, and different things. And, uh, and Buds was, you know, growing up in Southern California, going to go into the ocean. So the water element really attracted to me. So, so I joined the Navy in, in 99 and, you know, it was, a uh, it, it was a wild ride for, for 20 years, basically. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you would have led to the military had you not gone into law enforcement? I don't know. I don't know. And, uh, and there are certain factors kind of, as you reflect back in life, you're like, Hey, there's definitely these forks in the road and certain, certain life events happen where they, where they tend to push you one direction or the other. And I, I think for me, as I reflect back, looking at the sheriff's department and the path that I was on, it was definitely some events had happened during my time there that started to nudge me to, to give me that little push that I needed. Um, you know, that's a, at least for me, it was a huge decision. Like, Hey, I'm going to leave home. Like the town that I grew up in, you know, all my friends, my family, and I'm going to go to another state and I'm going to go through boot camp. So, and I, I had a stable job. I had a good paying job. So it was a big, you know, as far as going out of your comfort zone, that was a big decision. And I'm going to try and be this Navy SEAL were huge dropout rate, you know, huge attrition rate. This, this task that's very difficult is like, are you sure you are <laughs> like, there's the idea of something and then the reality of it. And so, so it was a big deal. So just certain life events had happened to me that, that really gave me that push that I think I needed to really make that, to take the plunge. Right. Before we get too far into your career, we have some mutual acquaintances, and I was told to ask you about playing volleyball in high school. Mm. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, so I, I actually don't share that too often. Well, that's why they so told me to ask it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got words for that person. No, not a big deal. I just, it's not, it's kind of that that West coast seal stigma of like, Oh, you West coast seals just play volleyball. So ironically enough, I actually played volleyball in high school and uh, it's probably still one of my favorite sports to play, even though I don't play it too often. Um, Ton of fun. I loved it. I wasn't very good. Now were you playing indoor or outdoor? Uh, Indoor. Okay. Indoor. I had a really nice coach. I was a real respectful young man. So I was very respectful to her uh, I had actually transferred high schools. I was going, I was attending a, a small private school and then I transferred to a larger public school halfway through high school. And so, you know, to go from varsity team at a small school, you know, always playing to going to a big school. And it was like, Hey, do you want to be on JV or do you want to sit on the bench on varsity? I was like, Oh, I'll sit on the bench on varsity. So, so I ended up learning a lot and uh, just enjoying being on that team. So, yeah, I played volleyball. I loved it. It's okay. I'm okay with it. I admit it. I played volleyball, too, in high school. I played it junior, senior year. We won the uh, the Catholic League title on Long Island. So uh, I'm right there with you. It's a great game. It's a lot of fun. You know? Yeah. No, no, nothing outside. wrong with it. I don't mind the stigma of volleyball. Yeah. It's just funny because it's definitely not, you know, your, your typical – a lot of team guys tend to play, you know, wrestlers or water polo or track or kind of more uh, a sport more associated with 
with athletics, but volleyball is definitely a, a tough sport and there, there's some pretty talented players and I still enjoy watching it uh, specifically when the Olympics is going on. It's, it's amazing. To that end, as you prepared for buds, did you feel like you were physically ready or did you need to do any extra training? Oh no, I, I did a ton of extra training. It was funny cause I'm now, so I live in Annapolis now and Stu Smith also lives in Annapolis mm-hmm. So ironically enough, I used Stu Smith's, his first book to help get me ready for buds. And then at the end, so at the beginning of the career, Stu helped me out. And then at the end of my career, when I transferred to the Naval Academy, I met Stu Smith. And so it was funny because I met him while I was um, at the, I was at the Naval Academy and I was overseeing the screening of the midshipmen who wanted to go to buds and Stu came out and we ended up talking. I just started laughing. I was like, Hey Stu, it's really good to meet you. I know you don't know this, but you actually helped me get ready for buds 20 years ago. And we both just had, we had a good laugh at that. All right. So as bud starts, uh, your first impression of hell week, did you think you made a mistake? No, why the hesitancy? <laughs> you you paused. Yeah, I was I was I was definitely putting some thought into that of like where were my emotion. I was there's there was definitely some nervousness leading up to it. And then it's you know, once it starts, you just you just go. And um yeah, it's it sucks. It sucks and it's it it's one of the most incredible experiences that I've ever had in my life, you know, and to go through, to go through hell week. And there was moments where I had to, you know, our, our rest, our rest periods, we would get not a lot of rest Our few rest periods. There was a good friend of mine and I remember him. I couldn't move. My hands were so swollen my body was was just completely trashed. I couldn't even unzip my hands to go to the bathroom. So, so a friend of mine had to help me just unzip my pants so I could go to the bathroom. And, and that was a type of – your legs are chafed and, and you finish it. And they tell you, hey, if you have any issues, don't go to the hospital. Like come to the center's – medical facility don't go to the hospital because if you if you go to a hospital they will look at you and have no idea what happened to you and even where to start because you have because so much damage has been done and i've heard that it takes about a year for your body to fully recover specifically from hell week so I still have scars on my body from hell week, both on my, on my fingers, just from digging in the sand and, and the skin rubbing off from picking up the boats, doing up boats and logs. And, um, and same thing with my knees from doing whistle drills and uh, moving. So I still have two scars on my knees and some scars on my knuckles from hell week. So it's definitely as it should be. And I, I like to remind people of this, like as the, the training's so hard, even when you go into the SEAL teams, people die in training. And that's not, 
obviously that's not what you want. However, the training should be so hard to where you're really taking it to those boundaries because the job is that hard. And because the work that's required is so demanding that to prepare you for that, the training has to be that difficult. Mm -hmm. I always ask this of Navy SEALs about the bell, you know, drop on request, ring the bell and get the hell out of there. Uh, you had enough. Doesn't mean you're a bad sailor. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean you're a bad leader or whatever. It just means this isn't for you. And that's fine because not everybody in the military gets to be one of those, right? So, but I always wonder, you know, what it was to you when you heard that bell ring. Was there anybody who you never thought would ring it that did? Um, did you ever think about doing it yourself? Kind of take me through that whole range of emotions. Oh, yeah. For for me, there was definitely times where where the thought of, of quitting came into my mind and I would, I would almost allow myself to quit mentally. And so this might sound weird. So if we were on a run or if we were on something, typically I'd use landmarks. I was like, Oh, once I reach that light pole, once I reach that berm, once I reach this thing, I'm done. And so as I, as I was moving towards that landmark, I would allow myself to have almost an emotional release of like, oh, I'm done. And it's funny, I actually, this morning, so I meditate every morning. And this morning, I did a meditation. And it was, it reminded me of during uh, surf torture, I think they call it water, water familiarization. Now they've, they've changed the language. Um, while I was sitting in the water, I would close my eyes, freezing and shaking with my arms locked with the guys next to me. And as I'd close my eyes, it'd be dark outside. And I would actually picture rays of light on me, like a light switch. So I'd picture like that I would just hit a light switch and the sun was up and that I could feel the sun's rays on me and that the sun, those sun's rays were, were warming my body. So I didn't understand that at the time, really what I was doing was I was practicing different visualizations and, and different techniques really to, as, as like a mental soothing exercise to get through those evolutions. And so even, even moving, I would allow myself an emotional break and say, Hey, once I reach there, then I'm done. And so this idea of like, of one step at a time, one obstacle at a time, one event at a time. And that's essentially kind of like, how do you eat an elephant one body at a time? So just mentally breaking things down and emotionally breaking things down to get through those evolutions is really how I made it through buds. Uh, to answer your question, as far as the sound of the bell, I had different, different feelings about it. Sometimes if I knew the guy, I would, I would, feel upset. And I was just like, Oh man, like that sucks. I, I can't believe he did it. I felt bad. And then other times where if I didn't know the individual, there would almost be some pride of like, of, of just of thinning out the herd. I was still there. I was still going. So, so almost motivational to, to hear it and to still be there and to be on the other side of that. So, so both emotions really came into play. Did some of that uh, you know, sort of mental mind games you were playing with yourself to get you through stuff come into play later on in your career during a deployment or anything else? Where you, did, did you need that sort of skill? 
Oh, 100%. I still, it's funny. I still use it today in specifically in, in academics. So I find, I found myself while I was going through my master's program and I started laughing as I'm sitting there trying to write, you know, just working on assignments and papers every night. And, and I'm not, I don't consider myself an academic. It's, it's very painful for me to sit down in the amount of discipline to sit down and to, to write a paper. And so as I'm sitting there and I'm just, I found myself saying the same thing. Hey, just, just start out with one word. Hey, just one sentence. And I started laughing because, because it took me back to, to my time at Bud's. Um, but yeah, 100% throughout my, my time in the teams, there was, there was things that, that I knew and it was really understanding time and having that understanding of how miserable I am right now, I know that this misery will not last forever, that there will come a time when this misery will pass. And then when it passes, there will also come a time that I will reflect on this, this moment of misery and also think about how I responded during this time. What was my attitude? Was I able to look past myself and think about the team? So even that self-pressure of understanding time, looking past it, that, that followed me throughout my career because the only time you're wet and sandy in the SEAL teams isn't during buds. You know, there was times where we're doing dives and it's wintertime and we're in the San Diego Bay and we're going out on the Zodiacs and it's a Thursday or a Friday night and you can hear everyone in San Diego and all the bars going off and it's in the evening and you're hearing everyone laughing and partying and music and it's just quiet out on the ocean as you're going out there in the Zodiac getting ready to get into this cold water for, and do a dive for the next two hours. And as soon as you get in, you're just like, oh, it takes your breath away. And here, you know, here we go for the next two hours. And you have to push that pain away and focus on on the event that you're you're getting ready to do. So, yeah, it absolutely followed me throughout my whole career. And it's still I still use that today. One more on Buds. Was there a seminal moment for you that that stands out or was there like a moment where you realized, hey, I'm going to make it? You know, I'm going to I'm going to get through this and I'm going to survive kind of deal. Can can you elaborate on that? You know what? I think for some guys, some guys may have had that moment. I don't think I ever had that moment. And and even all the way. So even so imposter syndrome, even to, after a 20 year career, I still I still don't feel like this this entire of like, oh, I made it. I. I actually still have this feeling today, a little bit of an imposter syndrome, like, wow, I can't believe I made it. <laughs> and, and even the career that I've had, I've just been very fortunate. And I think part of that comes just from, and it's really a, a testament to, to the guys in the community that I've been around and the, and the strength of the guys that I've been around have been so amazing that I've continued to have that that imposter syndrome. And later on in my career, when I, when I got to dev group, it, it was, it was absolutely that I was just like, Holy smokes. I was so amazed by, 
by the caliber of of operators and and the skill level is is so amazing i would i was looking around i was like how how did i get here um so very humbling experience and 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 still humbled by by the experience and by, and by the guys that i've been around throughout my career let me back up just for one second. So when you enlisted into the Navy, did you get a BUDS contract right away? Kind of, I mean, how quickly do you get to BUDS? And then from BUDS, how quickly do you get to teams? Uh, so, so at the time, I, I didn't. Things were a little bit different. Right, because it was a pre-9-11 world, right? It was pre-9-11, correct. So, so things were a little bit different then. I think they did have a contract. I don't think I scored high enough on the ASVAB to, to negotiate it. Um, what they did say was like, Hey, well, when you get there, so I was definitely, um, trusting my recruiter. I had spent some time with them. And so, so we had established some trust and I know there's different opinions on recruiters out there. Um, so I, I just, I went in as, as a normal, normal guy, no contract, no nothing. And, and in boot camp. We got the brief. I raised my hand to do the screening, did the screening, um, passed the screening, got orders and, and just went through kind of the normal, the normal pipeline, went, did a, a school. Originally I was, I was trying to go Corman. And at the time the teams were overmanned in, in Corman. So I sat down with the, with the seal and he was like, Hey, I'm a QM QM super easy. It's like three weeks long just go through QMA school and go to buds. So I was like, all right, sounds good to me. So that's what I did and uh, stayed in Chicago, did the QMA school and then went out to buds and I was in buds class two, two, eight. How quickly after buds uh, do you get to a team? So I was, I was fortunate enough. So when, when two, two, eight formed up, I think there was a hundred, uh, about 108 that formed up in the class. And there was, there was about 10 original two, two, eight guys that finished. And wow. so I was, I was fortunate to be one of those original 10. So went, went straight through, uh, went to, I was right at the transition of STT into SQT. So it's the, there was SEAL tactical training and then it went from SEAL qualification training. So there was some phases and I kind of just happened to be, you know, at the time that I came in, just fortunate enough to see transitions at BUDS, transitions with the training, transitions in the SEAL teams, um, really pre 9-11 and then the transition of things after the SEAL team. So it was real interesting to see, to see both sides um, and really just see the, that really the evolution of the SEAL teams to where it's at today. Where were you uh, on nine 11? So I was at a desert training site in California. So I was in my first platoon. I was assigned to, to SEAL team one. Um, so right after SQT, which is another, I think it was six months or so, six months training block after BUDS, uh, got assigned to SEAL Team 1. Uh, I was assigned to a platoon, and I was in hotel platoon. I don't even think there's a hotel platoon. We may have, I might have been in the last hotel platoon at SEAL Team 1. So SEAL Team 1 at this desert training site, and we were doing uh, patrolling. 
desert patrolling and working on uh, patrol formations and very old school Vietnam air tactics. So once again, to see that transition of tactics and a lot of our stuff was Vietnam based to then after 9-11 and as things evolved to eventually, you know, leave my career, you know, as I turned in stuff to go from Vietnam era tactics with, with only two people, maybe three people having radios and maybe only a couple people having night vision to move to, you know, four tubes, two radios, lasers, suppressors, CAS. So it was just an incredible transition really in a short amount of time on technology and tactics. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, we're still stuck doing Iraq tactics now as we've even moved past that, right? Like it, it finally took us, uh, I, I think this last summer was when we finally moved into like a Korea type atmosphere, right? Like what's, what's more of our threat right now, as far as the next invasion, we're still stuck in the Middle East and there are plenty of other uh, uh, detractors out there of scenarios that we should be working on, but no one ever claimed the military was ahead of the curve for most things. It's a, obviously a different discussion for, the, for a different day, uh, regardless. But uh, so 9-11 happens and you are uh, immediately thrust into what? Like what happens next? So we had so so the teams were at the were at a transition at the time at so the, the way that SEAL teams used to deploy was each SEAL team had its area of responsibility. So when I first checked in the SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 1 was responsible essentially for Asia. So deploy, the, the, the whole team would not deploy, just, just platoons. So it would almost be this, this back and forth and this rotation of of platoons that would go overseas. And a lot of times the, the single guys would just stay overseas if, if the platoon needed another guy. And so sometimes guys would roll into and just stay overseas and roll into different other platoons and, and just do a continuous deployment for a little bit and then finally come home. So they had transitioned from that. They were going into this, this force 21 is what they were calling it, to where the whole team would deploy. And the reasoning behind that was to have higher-ranking officers, SEAL officers, overseas with the platoons. So what they were finding was the highest-ranking SEAL officer was a lieutenant. So you have this lieutenant trying to jockey for for jobs or different assignments, but they're going up high-ranking Marines or Army. So just there was there was such a divide in the ranks, and so the the SEALs were there was a lot of missed opportunity there because of rank. So then they started moving things around to get higher-ranking SEALs overseas. So that was so it was so it was also interesting to just be a part of that. Um, and then to go from one geographic region to open up into other geographic AOs that other teams are responsible for. So my first deployment was to the Middle East. So we happen to be part of the, the Middle East crew. And obviously after 9-11, some other things shifted. Um, but we ended our, our intent was to go overseas and enforce UN sanctions in uh, the Northern Arabian Gulf. So we started out doing shipboardings out of Kuwait. And then from there, we ended up going over to Afghanistan. 
All right. And so this begins a cycle, as we talked about earlier, where you're going to deploy for six months pretty much every year or every other year for the next, what, you know, uh, 15, 15 years, years or so, right? Yeah. Yep. I mean, look, there's not enough time to cover every single deployment and everything that you did, but kind of let's just get at the outset. When do you get into your first taste in the war on terror? Is it in that first deployment to Afghanistan? You know, it's um, it's real interesting because this actually plays into kind of a, a a bigger, I guess, a bigger factor as I've reflected back on my career and this whole idea of you know trauma and PTSD and uh, moral injury. So for me, there was really like this this stair step, um, this progression. Uh, as far as learning about violence and learning about combat. And so it really started out, it didn't, it didn't start out heavy, you know, it started out like, yeah, there was some shooting and, you know, some of our guys shot guns and, and just being out and seeing AAA and seeing, you know, seeing cast. So it was this progression. And then the next deployment, you know, I went to Iraq and so we were doing, doing breaching and, and, uh, direct assaults. And so there was this, this, this progression up and really it it progressed up to where each deployment, um, really got more and more violent, you know, and each deployment saw, saw more and more death and and more and more dead bodies. And and it really kind of peaked for me, I would say at my, my last deployment at team one, which, which was Oh nine to, to 10, my, my last deployment with one. And it really just, peaked there you know i was i was in more gunfights during that time than i i'd ever been in uh i saw more death and and more you know i'd been around already a decent amount and the deployment before that we were in iraq and we were in you know we had some some significant engagements that we were in at that time but that afghanistan deployment was was really my most violent deployment and so it almost peaked there. And so I was, and this might sound weird. I was, I was fortunate enough to almost have this like slow introduction to violence to where I was able to get accustomed to it by somebody that just goes overseas. And now there's this, they get punched in this face with just huge shock and awe of, of a very violent deployment. And I think part of that um, definitely plays into how that affects the person after deployment. Yeah. And, and something we'll, we've touched on a lot on the podcast and we'll get into it later. I just, you know, for a moment, let me just stay with you and you talk about that violence and what it leaves behind. And, and, and this is something we, we talk about a lot as well in the sense of the wear and tear that takes mentally on each individual is different, right? Some guys, you know, some of the violence and losing, you know, a fellow brother or a fellow teammate, you know, another soldier, sailor, Marine, whatever it may be, it impacts them on the spot. Some guys pack it down and it comes back to them later. You know, uh, for you as somebody who constantly was in this deployment cycle and constantly in this violence cycle, uh, what do you do with all those emotions at the time? Can Is it just kind of scan, discard, move on, or how do you handle it? I had no idea how to handle it at the time, you know, so even just coming back and I started to notice it on my own. So I got back from my first deployment and to, to kind of get back to what I would call normal. It took me about six months 
So it took me about six months to to wind back down, to drive around town, just to be around town, to just to almost settle back in. And then each deployment after that, it was a little bit less. Then it was, you know, it took me about, and my next deployment was to Iraq, and that took me about four months to come back down. And then the other deployments, it was a little bit, it was less and less and less and less and less. And then when I was at Dev Group, we would go back and forth overseas. And it was, you know, at that point, it was, you know, maybe a day. And just the blending of the two worlds was just, was just integrated into me. And it wasn't, mm. you know, how I moved here in the States and how I moved over overseas. It was almost, they were just blended into one or pretty, pretty close to a blending of one. Um, but that it definitely took some time to get to that level. By the way, when were you in Iraq? I was in Iraq in uh, 04 to 05. Okay. I was there in 05 to 06. I might have overlapped you. And then I think uh, maybe 07 to 08. Where were you in 05? Are you allowed to say? I mean, I know some of the SEAL bases were more private than others. You know what? I was not 05. I was not there in 05. Okay. It was 05, 06, or... I was there before that. So, oh, oh, four. Sorry, man. It just all blends in. Of course. I, I think, mean, <laughs> I th- how could it not? I think oh, four into the beginning of oh, five. So I'm pretty sure I did a Christmas there. Gotcha. I mean, I, so yeah, I, I got there that. in February of oh, five. So, and we had, we had SEAL team guys with us attached to uh, the ODA that we were with for, uh, for, for special forces, but you know, I rarely saw them. A couple of guys I got a chance to talk to a little bit, just kind of curious. You know, like we we always say the military is a small place, and sometimes you end up uh, crossing paths with people you didn't know you did. But regardless, yeah. so, so we started out in Al Assad. Okay, yeah. So we started out there, and then the PSD mission came up, mm-hmm. and so we ended up taking uh, the PSD mission. Boy, that's kind of boring so for seals, isn't it? Uh it was. It was definitely, it was interesting. And for those, um, I'm sorry to cut you off. For those listening who don't know what a PSD is, personnel security detail is what he's talking about. So basically, uh, VIPs who come in and uh, or are traveling through the, the, the area of operations have a personal security detail. That's why I said it's kind of boring. It's not really what you guys are trained to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I guess a, a general had, had come in and they had taken a, a SEAL platoon that was that was there doing operations and they they took an element of those guys and they had them run PSD for this general and then later on as the the mission came up because that's when the Iraqi the new Iraqi council so the the president the vice president the the minister and so the the top 5 were were being formed for the new government and they were trying to figure out hey where do we pull all the security to protect them. And so we ended up getting pulled in to do that really because of one experience that this general had with one platoon. So, um, it wasn't, I'm not upset that we did it. Like I'm, I'm glad that I have that experience. Um, I would definitely not do it again, but for that moment in time, <laughs> I, I'm glad, I'm glad I have the experience of it. That was pretty definitive. I definitely would not do it again. <laughs> I would definitely not do it again. Um, well, it actually, it was kind of funny because it started out with, you know, State Department giving us classes on, and we we learned 
kind of learned on the fly out there. We had done some training that's, that's part of our already our curriculum. It, it's not real in depth. Um, so the state department gave us some classes and some secret service guys were out there and we had some dev group guys come out. Uh, one dev group guy kind of per platoon just to help us out, navigate that space a little bit better. And a few months later, the secret service ended up coming out to learn from us how we were doing, uh, essentially PSD in a, in, in a hostile environment, in a, in an environment yeah, sure, that's yeah. that hostile. So to have in the diamond, uh, a 60 gunner, if you will. And it's really just a show of force. So we would run, you know, just the demo was different. So the demo that we'd have in case of, uh, if we were ambushed, uh, just the different protocols, you know, if we were, if we ended up getting trapped, so how, how the cars were rigged, um, so it was just, it was really interesting and it was cool. It was cool to see just the creativity with the guys like, Hey, here's the basics. We, we, we'd go through, have a, have, get a fundamental understanding of the basics and then take those basics and say, okay, what makes sense for us in this environment? And really just adapt that to the environment. And then to have the secret service come out and be like, Hey, what are you guys doing? And so we were just sharing some of those things, um, with them. So it was, it was really cool. Let me ask you if you lost any guys on this and what that was for you. I mean, over the course of 20 years, uh, you know, that, that again, that kind of stuff that you just sort of blended the two worlds. What was that like when you sustained casualties? I'm, uh, it was, wow. Um, it was hard. And, and, and that's kind of a, an understatement. It was, you know, even being at team one, we lost, we lost guys in training, you know, like I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So, so really my first exposure to loss was, was stateside in training. And there was one year that, that we were, we had lost some guys on the West coast and East coast, both in, in different jump and air and, you know, some guys drowned, you know, in the ocean with over the beach stuff. And they ended up having, I think two times in my career, there was, there was two major, uh, training. I'm trying to think of the language they used, uh, like, like, like a stand down. So there was, there was no training, basically a stand down of all training. Cause we had lost, we were starting to lose, a decent amount of guys in training. So they, they did a whole stand down and a reevaluation of our training. So that was really my first exposure exposure to loss was there. And then overseas, just working with, with different partner units um, and other U S units, uh, ramp ceremonies. So a lot of, a lot of loss over the years, from, you know, from teammates, from guys in other units, and then even from, from partnering units and to have guys, you know, killed next to you. I, you know, I had partner unit folks that, that were killed right next to us and, and just seeing, you know, seeing other units killed and, and going to support, support those units. So it's, uh, it's taxing. It's emotionally taxing. Uh, it's, it's, it's mentally taxing. 
sometimes frustrating depending on, you know, of course you had the context of maybe policy that's going on overseas or, you know, certain things that's going on politically that, you know, on an individual level, you, you may disagree with or may not completely understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very, very difficult and, uh, and, and hard, hard to be around. When you talk about that violence, you know, it's one thing when you bring violence to the enemy. It's another thing when that violence lands on you. Are those different? Is there is there a difference in the emotion that you feel? Oh, one, for me, 100%. So to be a part of, you know, being part of taking life. So I used to, when I was at the Naval Academy and speaking with, with the guys who were getting ready to go to BUDS, I tell them like, hey, as a warrior, you need to be ready to take life and have life taking, taken, uh, you know, either from, from your group as well. So it's it, a very high level of consequence, right, to, to even compare it to a sporting event. However, it's still that like, hey, if you win a game, you're like, oh, you may sustain some injuries, but we won. Um, or, hey, we lost and we sustained some injuries or, hey, we lost like just the hit. So if, if you can put that almost in sports, because I think a lot of a lot of people can can relate to that. And now you you multiply that by like 100 and the level of consequence of of life and death. Uh, good friends that you've had for for years or somebody else wearing a uniform that's similar to yours and and now you're overseas um, so even to be around you know injury to hear your friends scream you know to to smell death to see the rigor mortis of bodies uh, set in so it's and to be one that that takes life and so a lot of a lot of the work that I actually do now, and then I'm developing now is, is in and around that. Um, and it's, it's really to help people prepare for that, what I call a volatile environment, um, better than what we are preparing for. Because often we right. talk about mindset, what we don't talk about, and we stay, you know, specifically Western culture, we spend a lot of time in our head. So a lot of, you know, we're logical and what's the science and, you know, so it's this, this headspace and we're up in our head and, and the head and heart are connected. And so our emotions, and now you see it in, in the leadership realm with, you know, EQ and emotional intelligence and, you know, taking time and, and, and more of that human aspect. And we're, we're really trying to find that balance again, because we've spent so much time in our head. And so if you if I could use sports again, if you were to watch a sporting event, let's say the Super Bowl or some big sporting event, you would see you would absolutely see these men on the field and emotions and emotions that are accepted. And you just see emotions from the observer, from the crowd, the energy that goes on. So now take that, take what happens in that in that arena and now apply that to the battlefield. And w- and we forget that that emotions are so key. So when you, you know, I remember the first person that I killed and the, and the emotions that went through, went through that, you know, for me. And so, and, and conversations don't take place that you would assume take place. Like, Hey, 
what do you think is going to happen? You know, or just how do you feel as funny as that is, or just what are your, how do you, how do you process those emotions? And, um, I think because a lot of conversation, there's a lot of upfront work, um, training that's still being left off the table mm-hmm. that I'm now trying to, to create and bring awareness around specifically right now for me, I do a lot of work with, with, different law enforcement agencies and I have the same conversation with them. So even our language. So at a basic level, I would start this conversation specifically at the Naval Academy. I would, I would ask them, Hey, who thinks violence is bad? And that's it. And that's how I would start out, you know, maybe one of the classes like, Hey, who thinks violence is bad? And for the most part, almost everyone in the class would raise their hand and they're like, yes, violence is bad. And then I would pause and I was like, okay, because they're all in uniform at the Naval Academy. And I would say, okay, you're all in uniform. And typically, you know, if I was talking to them, I would be in my khakis as well. I was like, Hey, think about this. When you guys graduate, you will either support or participate in acts of violence. You will either support or participate in acts of violence. So if violence is bad, you are also bad. And so then they would just stop and think about it. So I would start out with like just the language that we would use in and around violence. And it's so, it was so interesting to me that just that one question, how much dialogue discussion and debate would come just from the use of language. And so then we would continue that discussion and essentially say like violence is a tool. That's it. The morality lies in which, how you use that tool. Are guns bad? If a bad guy comes in and starts shooting up a place, bad. Good guy comes in, pulls a gun, stops bad guy. Good. Right. So now it's just like, hey, let's let's better understand this spectrum of violence because in our society and now this goes into transition. So when we talk about veteran transition, that's exactly what we're talking about. Veterans. However, there's two major transitions that happen. Our focus is only at the end transition. And that's where we're failing and dropping the ball and missing a huge opportunity to reduce trauma because we're not maximizing the upfront transition. And it starts really our language, Mm -hmm. our emotions and our body and how we do this upfront work of understanding this transition from society of what we learned from mommy and daddy. And now what we're going to go do outside of our little bubble in the real world, specifically overseas, and maybe even on the battlefield. And so even how we understand these things and the language that we use is a contributing factor mm-hmm. in the stories that we create. Right. And the stories that we create form our beliefs. So now when we look at these things, just simply saying like talking to, and I've talked to, to senior guys and I've told them, I was like, hey, it's okay. You're going to go overseas. You're going to kill people. It's okay. That's what you're expected to do. That's what your unit does. And just for them to hear it and hear somebody say something so taboo out loud and then have 
dialogue around it and logically lay it out. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I've never heard it that way because everything everyone wants to take this victim stance, this, oh, it's terrible. Oh, you're bad. Oh, it's this. And so now when you look at veteran transition at the back end, that is the only story that they've heard. So that is the only item on the menu for them to accept. So what I'm trying to do now is do this upfront work and create curriculum upfront for now individuals to better process their experience and to now create a different story and to provide opportunities and other perspectives and not just that of a victim. Does that does that make sense? No, it does. And, and there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I'll, I'll add this. A couple of things that, to your point, I wish I had had conversations with before I deployed that I had to come to grips with after I got back. One, context is key in everything in combat. And what you can't do is put American ideals and, and normal everyday rules and societal norms into combat. Combat, for, for lack of a better term, exists in a vacuum, and, and that is the vacuum of combat itself. So the things that go on there would never make sense in everyday life because, well, it's the furthest thing from everyday life. So I, I think context is extremely important, especially when it comes to violence and morality and how you handle all those things. And what's moral for me may not be moral for you. And, you know, what's inappropriate for you might not be inappropriate for me. So I think that is, those are conversations that are extremely valid. Um, in, in, in the sort of, sort of more of the mental picture, and this is something I, I, I say often, I, and I wish somebody had had this conversation with me before I deployed, was that, listen, somebody should have sat down with me and said, Mark, the day you land on that battlefield, just know that the person you were before is now dead. You'll never be that person again. You are going to be a completely different person no matter what. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're going to fail at life. It just means that you're going to view the world from a different prism from this point going forward. And understanding that took a long time because, again, along those same lines of context, I had to understand the things that I had to do in context and put them in context. And, and that means including all the violence, including all the loss, including all the bad things that I saw and was a part of and everything else and how I now process that. If you try to process it as the person who you were before you deployed, you're, there's always going to be a gap that you're going to have trouble bridging, Right. Like you're not going to be able to to look at it the same way. And you have to understand that the person that you are now better understands those things than who you were before. Like, is that is, is that fair? Oh, 100 percent. And again, I just I think that really is part of that mental preparation. I wish that that I had had going in. But, you know, my first deployment in 05, it's like we didn't have these we, – we never saw a need to have these conversations. We didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know we were going to be dealing with PTSD the way we are. We didn't know we were going to be dealing with mental health issues the way we are. So, so no one thought about it. And the fact that even as we are here 20 years later, you're still one of the first people I've talked to who's actually sitting there giving pre-combat training in mental health speaks to the fact that we're still behind the curve on this thing because you're the first person I've ever heard bring it up. Yeah. And it's so even it's funny, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the acronym VUCA. So it's Mm -hmm. it's an army acronym, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And it's big in the leadership realm. It's like, oh, we're in this VUCA environment. And I almost look at that as as an excuse, like, oh, we're everything's ambiguous. And it's just like, no, actually, hold on, let's just pause. What do we know? It's like, oh, we can look to Vietnam. We can look to the history and we can look at all these things. Hey, it's an issue. 
and it's actually gotten worse specifically for Westerners. So now if it's getting worse, what's going on with that? And is this, is this just a train wreck that we're going to keep going? And is our only answer, Hey, war's terrible. And whenever you finish your time in service, whether it's seven years or 30 years, whenever you finish your time, you're going to be fucked up and we're going to have mechanisms in place and all these nonprofits to try and help you out. Is that, is that the only answer that is unanswered to that question? However, we're just going to continue this train wreck and, and the amount of work that providers have already, they're like, it's insane how many clients and patients that, that providers have to try and to get involved. And now is the complexity that we're seeing with explosives and TBI and just the other injuries and the residual effects. And now just trying to give people their lives back. It's like, hey, there's there's pre-work that we can do and this idea of resilient, of bouncing back and to better process these things. If if the NFL has a mental skills coach or a leadership coach, why doesn't the military have that? So really that's what I'm trying to, you know, so I'm a certified leadership coach and with my experience, with my academics, and I'm getting ready to apply for a doctorate to really build this out some more. And it's this idea of this upfront work. And I, and I, where I saw this was at the Naval Academy as I'm working with the up and comers. And then as I was trying to, to really struggle with everything that I'd been through, I was like, man, there's a huge gap training gap. And we're doing a disservice because these, these young men and women don't have a clue what they're about to step into and they're going to get punched in the face with reality like everyone else did and we're not doing anything to help them out this is a crime it's a crime like it is such a disservice to them looking at the issues that we have now and to not do better to prepare them so 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 really just that's where my inspiration and motivation came from was from the young midshipmen and, and just the timing of, of my experience. And now like, I truly feel blessed to pour really everything that I've been through, through my life into what I call pre-traumatic coaching. And I'm working on a book right now with a psychologist on really pre-traumatic theory. And so I'm working with him on this book and uh, hopefully it'll be out early next year. And it really just introduces nothing, nothing, I wouldn't say anything crazy, um, but it's really just putting pieces in what some potential upfront work would look like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you speak of is sort of a big passion of mine. And for people who are continual listeners of the podcast, they know I'm still serving, you know, I'm doing the National Guard thing. One of my biggest passions is developing the next generation of leaders, right? I, I feel like sometimes senior officers in particular are so focused on mission accomplishment and everything else, that, you know, and what's next and, you know, where do I go from here and how do I finish out my career, all those things. And they don't spend enough time in developing the next generation and the next phase of leaders. Like to me, I think that is the best gift I can leave the organization is for me to develop a, a core of young leaders who are going to take over after I'm gone, because that makes everybody better. And, and so often 
we gloss over the fact of investing into people as opposed to investing into mission sets and, and you know, accomplishments and things of that nature. We need to do a better job, as, as you're alluding to, of investing in younger leaders within our military ranks so they can be giving these tools to the next generation that they have. And we have to start this cycle that continues perpetually. And if we don't, you know, we're going to start a different cycle that's going to be much harder to get out of. 100 percent and and i love it it's a it's an investment that you'll never reap the rewards no but i'm not looking to that's not the point (laughs) that's right however it is the best it is the best the most personal rewarding investment that you'll ever have um yeah 100 percent. there's nothing better for me than when i hear somebody who was under my command you know get another job or, or, or get promoted or anything else, you know, or, or they're the ones chosen for, for whatever. I mean, I mean, to me, that's where I reap the rewards because I feel like I had a part in that. I, ha- I feel like I had a part in developing them and preparing them for that next step. It's not about whether I get promoted or where my next job is or where I go. I mean, listen, anybody who, who puts on a uniform, yes, well, those things are important, right? Whether you're going from E5 to E6 or you're going from 05 to 06, you continuing to move forward is important because there's only two directions in our, in our organization. You either getting promoted or you're getting out, right? Like there is no third direction. You can't just kind of stay stagnant and have a long career. No one, no one's going to stay in E6 for 15 years. We just don't do that. So yes, those things are important, but the value you place on it and where you put it in your priority scale, I think is what separates people from, you know, as you're talking about wanting to help the next generation of leaders come through and, only kind of worried about yourself. Yeah. And I see this now, even in, even in the business sector, I was, I was doing some, I read every morning, I was doing some reading this morning. So even in the business sector with the the generational gap, we're seeing succession planning now be starting to move to the top priority. And it's really this, this idea of, of just mentoring. However, what I've seen is people get so busy in their own world. Like they're so, they're so busy with so much stuff that it's that now to take that extra time to develop like that, that space isn't there. They feel overwhelmed. And then the individuals aren't creating the space to then mentor those folks, or there's some insecurities that may be there of like, Hey, I have to hold on to this because you know, there's some power element that, you know, people have to come for me to this. And I feel good when people, you know, the sense of need. And, and if I start mentoring somebody else, I may get fired or I may lose some stuff. So there's a lot of different factors in play for it. However, it is, whether you're in business or in the military, I I truly believe that you're doing a disservice both to your yourself into the organization. If you're not mentoring somebody. Uh, again, I, th- I think we're on the same page with all this uh, because uh, it, it, we're not doing a good enough job in our organization of doing it. And it, that sort of initiative starts at the top. But again, the, the conundrum is the people at the top aren't thinking about what's below. They're thinking about what's next. And so round and round we go. Um, as you continue this sort of uh, you know business that you have with 3LX and uh, leadership and, and coaching and all those things. What do you hope is kind of the end state of that? I mean, is there a mission set for it and, and what do you want it to develop into in the, in the next coming years? Oh yeah. 100%. So, 
so for me in my mind this is my next this is my next 20 30 year endeavor um, I'm pursuing a right now I'm pursuing a getting ready to do the application probably in the next two weeks or so for a EDD so a doctorate in education so my undergrads in leadership my master's is in leadership um, I have a coaching cert uh, leadership coaching cert and then I'm looking at a doctorate in education with a specific to leadership and what I'm building out right now is this 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 idea of volatility, working in and around volatility. So there's a lot of things that I've developed already and, and breaking out and taking elements, both academics and of coaching and experience and just, and starting to build out curriculum and, and training plans for teams. Like I said, I'm working with law enforcement right now, uh, helping a lot of law enforcement folks. I even had, you know, two officers that I worked with, they ended up being in, in, two shootings pretty close together and and they put some guys down and as they were working with their with their psychologists and their and and their leadership they brought in some they had mentioned some of the training that i would given them and and now i'm looking at maybe giving training to to their whole department because of the the positive feedback that came from these two individuals and it's really hard for psychologists that that are either in the military or outside the military working with first responders or folks who work in a volatile environment for themselves to wrap their minds around some of these things because they've, they're that of the observer and never that of the participant. So, so some of these ideas to create different, even narratives for them um, is some of the stuff that I'm working on as well. So then these providers can better help the practitioners. So what I see is curriculum. What that and that's really my main goal is to have curriculum in either a boot camp, in an academy, whether it's a service academy or a police academy, or even a fire, or even right now with doctors, what we're seeing with COVID and the amount of death and the amount of stress that they're in and around, it's it's beyond that of the norm. And they're and they themselves also aren't as prepared as they could be for it as far as like, hey, how do you deal with the loss of life and the volume of it? So now you add the volume over time. So so all, there's all these different components that uh, that I don't think anyone, at least I haven't seen the work done on this. So I'm really just trying to build that out so to help people better process these things and not give them the answer. And that's the great thing about coaching. Mark, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to shit on you. I'm not going to tell you, hey, this is what you need to do. However, what I'll do is help you create the plan that makes sense for you. And so now it's creating a menu of items for you to establish a pattern. So when we talk about mindset, we're really talking about how we think about something or pattern of thinking towards something. So now, hey, what are our optional patterns? And what are you? what is your current pattern? So to now co-create with individuals both their, their mindset and their emotion set. So, so even the talk of emotions. So you have an emotional pattern. Whether you recognize it or not, you have one. So to now go through, recognize what those patterns are, and now set up, is that the pattern that you want it to be? Or these patterns may shift. So to really just create aware, awareness is, is really the first step. So creating awareness and then moving to, to uh, options, really options that you choose, that you choose at the end of it. So 
that's what I'm working on now. And that's, that's the long-term kind of goal for me with, with my company is to have, you know, keep a privately held company where I'm able to, to bring on different team members, build out curriculum. Uh, I started this, this, I, on my YouTube channel, I have a, a YouTube show called triaging time where I have therapists, I have a cop firefighter. So I have different folks on the show and it's really the whole show is built around volatility, uh, leadership, volatility, and trauma. If you had to have a conversation right now with the Dan Luna who was leaving the police force and heading into the Navy SEALs, what would you tell him? Huh. It's funny. My mind went to character. I would definitely – who I am today as far as the character – uh, my values, my ethics are very different than what they were 21 years ago. So, so I would, that's where I would start. I would have a conversation on character and then from character work from there. Any sort of tricks of the trade you'd want to give him? Any tips of, you know, one of these, Hey, you know, uh, there's going to be one point in your career where this is going to happen. Just make sure you do this kind of deal. You know, I, I keep um, so many of my conversations go back with my son. So my son's 15. He wrestles and we have a lot of conversations and, and the re- really the wrestling mat's just a vehicle. And it's a vehicle for for both how we think about something, how we feel about something, how we get ready for something, our actions through something, and then how we recover afterwards. So it's really these different cycles and these different ways of, of, of being, if you will. And so when I say ways of being, really that are, I go back to our word character. So character comes from the Greek word etch. So what you etch, what, what is marked daily. And so those, those are constant those are a lot of conversations that we have is like, is this who you want to be? I care less about what he does and more about like, is that how you want to be? Is that how you want to show up in the world? So, so that's really, that's the conversation that I would have. And that's, that's really the space that I would focus on is the being. And I know the, the army uses this, this be, do, no model, which is a great leadership model. And they, they all run in parallel. So my being is affected by what I do and my doing is affected by what I know. So kind of all these things, if I just know a lot, that's great. But if I don't act on it, if I don't do anything to support it, then there's this, this imbalance. And then my being doesn't get to move forward as well. So even with folks, when it comes to reading, they're like, oh, I read, you know, a book once a week or I do this. I'm like, hey, that's great. What are you doing with that knowledge? How has that book changed you? How's that book moved you forward? And now that and I'll always get a pause after that. And that's great because what we want to do is we want to we want to learn. We want to constantly learn. So we're doing and we're evolving. And then it also changes our being. So we're now being something better each day. Pretty powerful stuff, man. I mean, it really is, you know, and uh, we usually spend a lot of time on on the podcast, you know, going over battle and sort of uh, survival and all the other stuff. But, you know, this particular 
you know, episode, we've touched on so much of the mental aspect. Uh, I think there's so much here that, that, that we could dive into even deeper um, because, it, you know, for every person, you're going to take a different path, right? It's kind of like a choose your own adventure book. I mean, there's no set mental, you know, path for my being mentally healthy versus you being mentally healthy versus somebody else being mentally healthy. We all have to walk on that path on our own and sort of figure it out along the way. And, uh, you know, it's always great to have a little bit of a guide or, or, or a, a little bit of a map somehow that can help you take the right steps. But I, I think we're starting to touch on that a little bit here. Exactly. You hit exactly 100%. And that's the beauty for me of being a coach is I'm not a consultant. I'm not telling you, hey, this is the way. If you follow Dan Luna's eight-step process to leadership, then you will be a great leader. Like it, it is so – my philosophy is totally against that. And um, and I know there's folks that, that are real heavy in that realm, and I won't put them down because they're still doing – you know, positive things and they're influencing and, it, and they're helping a lot of folks. So that's great. I'm definitely more of the, the mindset of, I will absolutely not tell you who you should or shouldn't be your, your past. Like, where does your past live? Your past lives inside of you, your personality. So your past is different than me. Your personality is different, your values, your beliefs, all these things are so different. So everyone's so unique. And so the beauty of, of what I do, either with teams or individuals, is to coach them through that process. So to help them navigate that space and to break things down into bite size towards understandable and then where they can navigate it. And it's it's choose your it's your journey. It's your life. I am not going to tell you what you should. However, what I'll do is help expose options and possibilities. And it's really creating awareness that opens up more choice. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about more choice and just seeing what other options are out there. Cause so often we're our biggest furious. We're like, Oh, this is the only choice that I have. Is it more challenging kicking in doors and getting bad guys or more challenging trying to navigate someone's mental sanity? Oh yeah. 100%. Absolutely. It's, to, to help someone navigate that space is is 100% more challenging. It's it just it, it kind of astounds me almost the depth that this thing goes to, you know. Um, and, and even and even more challenging is is for me to navigate myself yeah. through this, <laughs> right? To conquer yourself. Yeah. And I, it's so as I talk about these things, it's just like, oh man, I I have so much work. Because as I go through it, my own awareness is is also expanding, and then I'm I'm seeing things in myself and uh, in gaps that I that I need to improve upon as well. Anything you change about your 20 years in the Navy? Not a thing. Any moments that you 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 sort of stick out the most to you? Uh, you know, at the top of it, outside of you know losing a teammate or anything like that, is is there anything that stays with you more than something else? There's different, um, it's kind of hit and miss, you know, deja vu type things. You know, there, there might be times where, you know, I'm watching a, a TV show and, and it'll, it'll kind of, it'll bring back a memory or it'll elicit an emotion or I'm out in certain smells, you know, anytime I'm, I'm out by a fire, it's still, it, 
fires take me overseas. Um, so certain smells, certain, certain things, um, I'll almost travel back overseas. So it just, it just varies. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I had a, I had a great career. I had some amazing mentors. I was around some amazing people. Um, I learned so much and, uh, just, just really blessed to, I call this my bonus round. Um, I never looked at life past the SEAL teams. I, you know, I didn't think I was going to live to see 42 and it was just something that I had accepted. And so to now be 42 and to still be here and enjoy, you know, time with my kids and time with my family and, uh, just, just so grateful, you know, especially for, you know, the, the number of friends that I've lost and teammates. So to still be here today, uh, just very grateful, very humbled. And, um, I'm just, I'm, I feel very blessed to do the work that I'm doing now. Well, to that end, listen, 20 years in the teams is, uh, no small feat. Uh, there's not a lot of guys who, who get to put that on their resume and as impactful as that was, and as important as that was, I get a sense that uh, phase two of the life of Dan Luna can have just as big, if not bigger impact on the next generation of, of leaders and, and people uh, in business uh, all across the country. I mean, you know, it's, it's a mountain that not many people are choosing to climb. Um, and, and that only, not only goes from a personal standpoint, you know, uh, everybody looks at their, their own mental challenges as a mountain that they have to climb, but you're not only are you climbing yours, you're helping people climb theirs. And, and that is a, a benevolent agenda uh, that not a lot of people are willing to undertake these days. So certainly I uh, congratulate you on that endeavor and, and, and I wish you nothing but the best for it. Awesome. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Dan Luna, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.